Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Madison Wyman. I uh, serve as a pastoral intern here at Terranova, and uh, welcome. Um, also, hello to those who uh, are on the live stream and online. Um, I watched the live stream a couple weeks ago, and I felt left out. So, hi guys. Um, so this week, as Pastor Matt said, we're going to be um, thinking together about the promise of God's welcome. And I know it's been a couple weeks, but I'd like to share with you guys what me and my family did over the holidays, um, specifically over New Year's. So as many of you know, we have a toddler named Claire. Um, so as you would expect, celebrating New Year's in the traditional fashion is kind of off the table um, for a couple of reasons. One, it's hard to bring a toddler to a party. Not impossible, but hard. And two is I've been told it's unwise to keep them up past past 11, even up into 12, so it's a whole thing. But we still, we wanted to celebrate New Year's, so we uh, called a couple friends and we're like, hey, we can't promise much, but would you guys come and spend New Year's with us? And they said that they'd love to. Now, they, they live an hour and a half away or so, so we also offered to them that they could, you know, stay at our, stay at our place, spend the night, and spend the New Year's Day with us as well, so that's what they did. So they came over, we... Uh, Spent the day, spent the uh, evening playing games and uh, enjoying some good food, and then I think me and Christina got to bed around 10 o'clock, which was nice. And then um, in the morning, we uh, woke up, we had coffee and uh, a breakfast that shattered any goal of weight loss resolutions for the new year. And um, she, I, she made this thing, it was like French toast, but it was, it, I'll have to actually figure out what it was and tell you guys later, but it was, it was ridiculously good. Um, and then we spent the day, you know, in leisure, talking, uh, napping, spending time together, watching some videos, and then we ordered pizza for dinner, and they were off back home. So, <laughs> so why do I bring this up? Well, traditionally, we, me and Christina and Claire, would have been the welcomers. We would have been the hosts. But let me tell you, when our friends left our home New Year's Day, we were the ones who felt welcomed. When we invited them, they knew that Claire wasn't going to stop being a toddler while they were there. She screamed in their face as much as she screamed in our face. Our house wasn't impeccably clean, and we were in bed by 10, and they knew all of that coming in. They knew where we were, and they were content and excited to meet us there. The welcome that we experienced wasn't only tied to the fact that we welcomed them into our home, it's that they welcomed us into, our, into their presence and committed that presence to us. And if I can do anything this morning as we talk about the promise of God's welcome, is I want to expand it to not just include both the gracious and loving host, but also the friend who enters in and comes alongside. I'm now just remembering that I did not make slides for this morning. So if there's anything that I say that for some reason you want to hear said again, just come up to me after. I have my, I have my notes and I, I will be happy to repeat myself. But last week, Pastor Daniel gave us an introduction to the promises of God. And in that, he stated that some of prom God's promises are explicit, right there, written down, plain as day in Scripture. And some are implicit, where we have to do a little bit of thinking, a little bit of work, a little bit of reasoning to get there. And again, last week, with the promise of God's presence, that was a pretty explicit promise. It was right there in Scripture for us. 
with God's welcome, it seems to fall a little more in that implicit camp. And even more than that, I would say it's something called a composite promise. As we think about promise of welcome, you can think of a couple passages that might come to mind off the top of your head. One that I thought of immediately was Matthew eleven twenty eight, which is, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now that sounds like a promise of welcome, but really it's explicitly a promise of rest. So you can see why I'm like, why I'm, why I'm understanding it as implicit, because it's not explicitly stated often. So a composite promise is what I think welcome is, and that just means it's a combination of promises that God's made to us. So as we begin this morning, I want to take a cursory glance at a couple different promises that kind of build up and form the promise of God's welcome, and then use them to shed light and bring to life the promise of God's welcome for us in Scripture. Now the first of these, I think there's three of them, the first of these is the promise of God's presence that Pastor Daniel preached on last week. So I'm not going to belabor it too much, but I do want to run through and grab some of the highlights for us. So I know with COVID it makes things a little bit tricky, but has anyone done any uh, interstate travel recently? Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Byron has. So only Byron, so I'll address this towards... Oh, Matt's done it too, okay. So I can, I can address the entire congregation, good. <laughs> um, as you usually cross state lines going into Pennsylvania, going into Massachusetts, wherever you go, you usually get this big hunk of metal on the side of the road that says welcome to Pennsylvania, welcome to Massachusetts. And that's nice. I think even if, if you use Google Maps, a little animation pops up for you and it says, hey, welcome to Pennsylvania, and they'll put all the state, the state flower on there or something. But have you guys ever really truly felt welcomed by the sign on the side of the road? I'd say not, because it's not really a friend offering, welcoming, welcoming you into Pennsylvania. It's more of a hunk of metal giving you directions, right? Like it's not present with you, it's not present. And presence is so essential to welcome. God's promised us his presence. The last words of the Gospel of Matthew that we've been in for a long time are an announcement of this promise by Christ. He says in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of the story of Joshua, in which God promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. God is always present with us, and he was specifically bodily present during the earthly ministry of Christ. Towards the end of that ministry, Jesus, foreseeing his departure, made clear to his disciples how the promise of God's presence would continue, how that would continue to be fulfilled when Jesus had left. Because he says, I will never leave you for, and forsake you, but then we get into Acts, it's like, oh, he ascends to heaven, and well, he's not physically there anymore, so what does that mean? There's a companion promise to I will never leave you and forsake you that we th- see in the Gospel of John. I'm going to read that for you real quick. It's John 14, 15 through 24. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me will not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. So that, that's a long passage, and there's a lot in there. I myself conservatively count around eight explicit promises made to us in that passage. But most, if not all of them, are stemming from this promise of the Holy Spirit, or as Christ calls him, the Helper. It's through his Spirit that God dwells with his people. Listen again to verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. That presence, that home presence, is promised to us, church. And as Pastor Daniel reminded us last week, if you don't feel that presence, if you think that this promise may be true, but just not for you, let me encourage you to just follow hard after God. Look to the word of Jesus and obey it, and he and the Father will make their home in you. So God has promised us, his presence. But remember, we're talking about welcome. So what else is missing to make the promise of God's... I almost fell over there. Oh, my word. So what else is missing to make the promise of God's welcome come alive? The next promise I'd like to talk to you about is the promise of place. Now, full disclosure, I got a little bit too deep into this when I was doing my preparation. I had no clue, but there's like a whole world of thought regarding place. You know, there's theological conceptions and like sociological and philosophical, like there's a whole field that's just dedicated to understanding what place is. So I'm going to try and not get distracted by all of that, but I have so many thoughts about it. If you want want to talk to me after, I'll probably keep you a couple hours, but for now, I want to just define place. Old Testament scholar and philosopher uh, Greg G. Bartholomew describes place as what happens between body and landscape. So place isn't just a location, it's the human aspect of a location. When we as humans hang out somewhere long enough, we generally imbue that place with emotion, story, culture, history, shared experience. And you can realize pretty easily what I'm talking about if you try and picture just a house in your head. Think about a house, you know, at least four walls, a window, a door, maybe a couple different rooms. And you get a general picture of what a house looks like, but then if I ask you to stop and picture your childhood home, you certainly, hopefully, have a picture of a house, but you probably have more than that. You've probably got some sort of feelings, some sort of emotions, some, maybe even smells or sounds that you remember. But that's place. It's the human aspect that we bring to a location. 
And you'll notice that some of those emotions for all of us may not be good emotions. Many people have grown up in childhood homes that leave nothing but bad memories and bad feelings. But it's an essential part of being human, to be in a place. More than that, we long for a good place, to be put and to live in a good place. And that's been the story since the beginning. If we go back all the way to Genesis 2, we see that God made us and set us in a place, a place that he spent a good deal of time fine-tuning and making perfect for us. In that place, he was present with Adam and Eve. He walked with them and he talked with them. And you'll notice if you look throughout scripture, what makes a place a good place is God's presence. This garden that God had made and set man into was, because of his presence, a welcoming place. But it didn't take long for us to infringe on our host's welcome. As we see in Genesis chapter 3, we disobeyed. We set ourselves above God. So he kicked us out. Now, outside of the garden, we, instead of making a good place, we pretty much made hell on earth. That's what we do when we try and make our own places without God's presence. It just, from the beginning, from the outset, it goes haywire. In that day, it got so bad that God actually had to send a flood to wipe all the wickedness from the face of the earth. But even then, even still, he promises people that one day he would bring them to a good place. He would make for them a home. As we read in Genesis 12, God says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make for you, I will make you, make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. And that time, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. But then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. God looks at Abram and says, your people will be a great people. And they will have a place to call home. And so begins the story of Israel. Uh, these people grew into a great nation, not in a good place, but while in exile in Egypt. And from there, Moses led them out, directed by God, to bring his people to the land that he had promised them. People, by the, is actually another part of this promise of welcome. You have presence, you have place, and you have people. You need someone to do the welcoming, somewhere to welcome them to, and someone to welcome. God's people fled from Egypt and neared the land that was to be given to them, yet time after time they failed to obey God's word and failed to honor him as God. So he sent them to wander 
And it wasn't until 40 years later that Joshua finally led them across the Jordan and into the land that they had been promised. But as they begin to settle there, we start to see a familiar scene emerge. As Judges puts it, the people began to do what was right in their own eyes. Sometimes, as they grew, they would grow closer to God, but all in all, the people of Israel tended to grow away from him. So, God had to send a flood of invaders to wipe the land of their wickedness. And for generations, they cycled in and out of exile again, at the mercy of the throes of the geopolitical landscape. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, and then the Greeks and the Romans. Yet God's promise still stood, and his promises always do. We were reminded last week that God's promises are unique in that him being God is the only person who can ensure that his promises are going to be fulfilled. No politician or businessman, not even an earthly father, a wife, or a husband can make a promise and know that that promise will be fulfilled. Only our God has that kind of privilege because only our God has that kind of authority and that kind of character. Yet, to the unwitting eye, it would seem as though God had been put in a bit of a, a, bit of a pickle because time and time again he had tried to extend his welcome to his people. And time and time again we had rebuffed him. He had made his people a place, first the garden and then the promised land, but for humans, place always means rival kingdoms and it always means placing idols in front of our God. But idols, like interstate welcome signs, are nothing. They have no presence, and they can't extend to us welcome because they have nothing to give. Idols like money and power and ultimately just ourselves. Now, none of this was really a surprise to God. He knew, but he was driving towards an ultimate extension welcome. He was building up to the most marvelous show of welcome that he could extend to humankind. That's Jesus. And I, I really want us to wrap our minds about how, around how marvelously subversive the incarnation and the gospel is on this point. Because God's, God's extension of welcome flips the entire script on its head, all of history. When God sent his son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh to earth, and when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of his disciples, they were completely ripping up the playbook on presence and place. Up until now, place had been physical, and that presence had been tied to a physical place. Whether it be the garden, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, or later the temple. But now, the Holy God says, let us go and make our place in humankind, and let our presence be in them. See, instead of inviting us into a place, God makes us the place. He sends his Holy Spirit to make his home in his people. And moreover, he sends his Son to dwell and live his life here on earth. And this is the essence of what theologians sometimes call the humiliation 
of Christ. The fact that Christ leaves his heavenly place and comes into our earthly place. Like our friends at New Year's, he's not waiting for us to get our stuff straight. He's not waiting for the toddlers to grow up and be polite. And he's not waiting for the house to be clean. No, he pursues and he barges into our messy lives and he says, I'm here now. He meets us where we are, whether or not it's a place that we want him to meet us in. If you would indulge me, I'd like to share a pretty short poem. It's a poem by a poet named R.S. Thomas, and it's called The Coming. And God held in his hand a small globe. Look, he said, and the sun looked. Far off, as through water, he saw a scorched land of fierce color. The light burned there, crusted buildings cast their shadow. A bright serpent, a river, uncoiled itself, radiant with slime. On a bare hill, a bare tree saddened the sky. Many people held out their thin arms to it, as though waiting for a vanished April, to return to its crossed boughs. And the sun watched. The son watched them. Let me go there, he said. The son of God chose humiliation. And he chose degradation. He chose a cross. And he chose to come here to suffer and to die. Why? To welcome us. To make us his people. We had rebuffed him time after time, and yet he said, I haven't done all that I can yet do. Let me die for them. Let me go to them. And then, should they see my glory and turn to me, I could welcome them into my presence. God loves us. He loves you. And he wants to welcome you and Perhaps this morning you've heard his voice really clearly for the first time. Maybe it's been a while and you've known his welcome before, but really you haven't felt it in quite a long time. Now wherever you stand this morning, this promise is for you. Your Father, your God, the creator of the universe welcomes you. Those who accept this welcome, God's people experience what I think is the final and almost unspeakable marvel of the gospel. He adopts us. John chapter 1, 11 through 13 says this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Further, in Romans 8, 14 through 17, we read this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. More than God's people, we are his children. God is our father and Jesus Christ is our brother. And just as his character is such that he will always deliver on his promises, he will never fall into any of the sins or mistakes that earthly fathers can make. One of my favorite worship artists is Steph McLeod. We actually sang one of his songs this morning, I Trust in Jesus. On his most recent solo EP, he has a song called, Oh Perfect Father. And it, the first stanza reads like this. Oh perfect father on heaven's throne who gave my orphan heart a home, treasured and destined before all time, forever claimed by your love divine. What wondrous kindness shown to me to know that I'm eternally a chosen child of God above, the perfect father with perfect love. Now there's a lot that we could start to say about how this promise changes us, how it extends into our lives and how we live in the delight of it. And I think we're gonna probably write up maybe a small blog post to talk about some of that and you might see it later this week. But for now, I wanna leave you with perhaps the most explicit story of welcome that we read in all of scripture. And that's Luke 15, 11 through 32. Hear the promise of your father in heaven. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of its citizens who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate because he was so hungry, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him 
and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. That's a promise for you, church. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we thank you for how marvelously intruding you sometimes are in our lives. We're not ready for you most often. And most times we feel like we can't even draw near or draw close to you because of all the stuff that we've done. But Father, I thank you that no matter how much we've done and how much we've perhaps disappointed you, when you look at us, you see Jesus. And you see and you love and you run for us. And you embrace us and welcome us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your love. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.